know. Whoa. Okay, good evening. Hey, I'm Jason. I'm a pastor with the house. Um, I do work here. Uh, hey, if you were here last week, um, there might have been a very interesting song that was played right after our benediction. Uh, and if you noticed that, I want to apologize to you. Um, if you didn't notice that, I want to apologize to you. Uh, uh, I, I spent some time this morning curating a playlist or, or two on Spotify without cuss words. Um, and I think without very offensive messages, but I'm almost 38 years old. I don't really know this stuff anymore. So um, if you noticed things like that, feel free to tell us. Um, look, I'm going to geek out just for a minute with you because this is, uh, maybe you don't know this. There's a lot of stuff that our leadership thinks about. Um, and we might get stuff wrong sometimes, but we put a lot of thought into things. So like even with music, um, I, I really don't want a bunch of worship music playing um, when you guys all walk in like on the, on the sound system all the time. Um, I ju- and it just has to do with an intuitive feeling for me that it, it just feels really insider. And like when I walk into a place where music, like Chris Tomlin or whatever the Hill song, whatever the stuff is, is playing in the background, it, I just, I feel like I'm supposed to like get in line a little bit, like and do the, the right things and like make sure I, I don't even know, I just, I can't cuss in that coffee shop or something, I don't know. Um, maybe I shouldn't anyway, but whatever. Um, obviously, I, I, don't, I don't think it's um, problematic to sing worship songs. I actually love that we do, but I'm like, we're gonna sing a bunch in just a minute. People are gonna lead us in it and we're gonna actually do it, you know? And I, I love that. Um, but, but as background music, I actually have this suspicion that it's a barrier for belonging for some people. Um, like if this is your first time here and you walk in and it's a bunch of like elevator Christian music, um, if you'll like sit here for an hour and a half and be like, okay, anyway, next. Uh, I just have this suspicion it's that. But this also is a worship service and I, I definitely wanna play music which is in line with the reason why we come here and with the mood of the room. Um, I don't know what the magic thing is there in between well it's not probably the song we played after the benediction last week uh anyway I'm real sorry and to those of you who had the courage to say something about it thank you that means a lot um in the past it's uh just comes out on Twitter so thank you um all right look we're the house um when we do um announcement videos videos they they sound sound like this this um and we play inappropriate worship music um I mean music at worship services so I'm glad you're here uh but if you are new, um, if this is your first week, um, which by the way, last week there's a lot of new people here. Are there new people here this week? Raise your hand if you're new here. First time, first time, first time, first time. All right, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Um, I said this last week, but for those of you that do consider this place to be like a home for you or, or you, the, the house is yours, um, I know people that graduate from the house even though they don't graduate from college. Uh, <laughs> yep, maybe, uh, that might be a thing. Um, Hey, if somebody next to you is new, get to know them. Um, take them out to coffee, buy them breakfast or something, you know? Uh, help them pay for college. Do something really nice. Um, anyway. Okay, you guys are figuring that out too. Anyway, the house, um, for those of you who are new, and for those of you that have been around for a while and just don't know, um, and I'll, I'll probably do this every couple of weeks at least, but the house is, we're a college ministry of this city, in this city, for this city. Um, a ton of churches and individuals, like a ton of them, Um, in our town love you and they want you to be known and know Jesus and so they equip the house to exist on this campus for that purpose that's why we're here Um, I I know it can be a little tricky trying to get to know people in a room this size um, and like to make friends and that kind of thing Um, so sign up for like a chat session come have breakfast on the lawn tomorrow go sit in the hub um, or serve alongside of us Um, Kirsten mentioned this the video kind of did 
Um, and then after tonight, you'll hear more about this, but one of the best ways to get connected and to participate in what God is doing through the house is to just get behind the scenes and help us steer different aspects of this ministry. We have a publicity team, a prayer team, our hospitality team is a bunch of people who have a heart for welcoming others and inviting them into community, a local missions team, a worship team. Maybe you just wanna like push buttons on the soundboard and help with lights, join our AV team. Maybe you're an angel who wants to help set up and clean up on Tuesdays or make the hub beautiful. Um, would you please consider stepping into some of these areas of service? It really, really is a great way to love other people in this room. Um, it's a great way to develop a community by making this thing a little smaller. Um, so that you can be known and know others, right? All right, well, last week um, we talked about how Jesus um, makes space for our desires, how he stirs up our desires and flames them and makes them stronger. And tonight um, we're gonna see him make space for us to see our brokenness and our need for healing. We're looking at the Gospel of Luke this semester, uh, hoping to better know Jesus and who we are in him. Um, and so as, um, as we get into this sermon, I want to ask you to pay attention, pay attention to who Jesus is, what he says, what he's like, and I pray that God would help stir up your imaginations that you might be able um, to imagine him. I, I would encourage you to do that, to do that every week, um, but let, let's pray together and we'll get into it. Um, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So um, our story tonight comes from the Gospel of Luke, and it requires us to have a little bit of understanding about the setting. Um, for some of you that grew up in um, like Sunday school classes doing things called sword drills, which was a really strange phrase um, for me um, uh, to, to learn about, um, uh, you might be really familiar with all this, but one of the things that, um, that's on my heart a lot is not just assuming everybody already knows all the answers to all these things, you know. Uh, so I'm going to do a little bit of vocab with you guys tonight, and I hope it's somewhat helpful. Um, and if you ever have questions, by the way, about something that's set up front, um, you're welcome to ask. I'd love, honestly, I would love to talk about it. Okay. Um, okay. If uh, setting and vocab stuff. Okay. Um, this setting of this thing takes place in a Jewish synagogue. That's the story tonight. In the city of Capernaum, which is a small town on this lake. Um, and, and synagogues were built by Jewish people, they, they still are, um, as places to worship God. By coming to pray, to offer sacrifices, to listen to teaching or public reading of scriptures. That's primarily what they're used for, some sacrifices. And in the synagogue, on this day, and probably every day, were Pharisees. And their name comes up a lot when you're looking at the life of Jesus. The Pharisees come up a ton. There's also scribes that are with them, and they're often lumped together, although they're two separate groups. I'm just going to talk about the Pharisees tonight. But they come up a lot when you're looking at the life of Jesus because he's always with them or around them, always. He was in their homes for dinner. He was with them at festivals and feasts. He was worshiping with them in the synagogues. He was teaching them in the synagogues. And he was often at odds with them. They were culturally, within the Jewish community, they were the religious elite, the perfectionists. They were the do-gooders whom no one could measure up to. They knew all the right things to say and do, and compared to the rest of us, they were actually saying and doing them. They knew and strictly obeyed all the old laws and traditions of their people, they were the always right religious police. That's the Pharisees. 
And so the place is the synagogue and the people you probably need to be aware of are the Pharisees, but you also need to know about the day. It's a Sabbath day. And if there is one religious aspect of Judaism which was most important, it's a Sabbath. And I think this is, it's just so hard for us to fathom how significant this day is for them. This probably will just, uh, your probably eyes will kind of roll back in your head a little bit and not even care about this or glaze over or whatever the appropriate thing. Don't roll back in your head, that's weird. Glaze over is probably better, but still not good, whatever. Um, anyway, um, so God commanded, he commanded his people to labor for six days and rest for one. Neither of those things we do very well. Neither of them. Labor for six days and rest for one. God commanded this that they would rest, that they would stop or they would cease from work and rest. That's what Sabbath actually means. Sabbath, the word Sabbath, actually means to cease or to stop. It means rest. That's what it means. And on the Sabbath, they couldn't light fires. They couldn't even travel. It was a day set aside, God would say, as a sign of the covenant he made for them, as a promise to his people. It was supposed to be used for joyful rest, for restoration, for nourishment and rejuvenation and thanksgiving, for these kinds of things. If you are actually laboring for six days, take a day off and, and be, be. And this Sabbath day in the synagogue with some Pharisees gathered around, this, that was the day, this is the setting, Jesus was teaching them. And in that same room that Jesus was teaching, there stood a man with a withered hand. His, and his hand, it was his right hand, which is uh, somewhat significant because that was just considered the dominant hand and the most useful one. And so a lot of commentators will, um, will speculate that, that potentially this man's livelihood was at stake because he couldn't use his right hand. That's speculation. But for some reason, Luke tells us that detail, that he's standing in the middle of the room with a withered right hand and some of the Pharisees in the room, not all of them, because not all the Pharisees are bad. And even as I say that, there's an irony here because... Uh, I'm not quite convinced that the Pharisees are any worse off than the rest of us. But some of the Pharisees were Christians later. Some of the Pharisees hosted people in their, uh, the apostles in their homes. And Luke makes a point here that it wasn't all the Pharisees, but some of them in the room kept looking back and forth from this man with the withered hand to Jesus. You almost have the image that they're standing off to the side and they're just like watching and waiting to see what Jesus is gonna do. Because if he attempted to heal this guy on a Sabbath day, they were going to accuse him of breaking God's law by working on the Sabbath. Jesus had done it before in the same room on another Sabbath day. So tonight we're looking at a passage from Luke chapter 6. If you go back to Luke chapter 4, you'll see in the same town, in the same synagogue, Jesus heals somebody. And the Pharisees don't say anything then, and I wonder if it's just because it's the first time that something like this happened in their presence, and it might have been just a shock to them. But now Jesus is back and they're ready. And so in the same room on another Sabbath day, there's a man in the middle of the room with a withered hand and the Pharisees are looking back and forth to see what Jesus is gonna do, hoping to trap him. And Jesus, knowing what was going on in their hearts and their minds, I'm not making that up, that's what Luke says. Jesus looks at the man in the middle of the room while he's thinking about what's happening with the Pharisees kind of gathered around the side, looking at all this. He looks at the man in the middle of the room and he says, come here and stand in front of everyone. And when the man was standing there, Jesus turned to his critics and he says, I have a question for you. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath 
Or is it a day for doing evil? You notice there's no neutral ground. Is this a day for good or for evil? Only one of them is happening. Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? There isn't this neutral middle ground of leaving life alone or letting it be. You are saving or you're destroying. You are doing good or doing evil. He asked them this question and they were silent. So here was a man standing before them whose hand was in need of restoration and healing. His hand was in need of what the Sabbath day was about. And they were silent. And Jesus was angry. He was angry. There's a, there's a parallel passage to this account in Mark chapter, two, uh, chapter 3. Chapter 2 and 3 overlaps with these stories. And there Mark has a detail that, that Luke doesn't include. That Jesus, when he asked this question and they were silent and he was looking at them, he was angry and he grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Here this man stood before them with a withered hand, but Jesus grieved at their withered hearts. Now he didn't grieve the man with the withered hand. He didn't grieve him. He didn't, he didn't get angry at all of them and grieve this man who has, was crippled in front of him. That's not what happened. He looked at all of them and grieved them and their hearts. Why? Why was he grieving them? Because that man's need, the one standing in front of him, that man's need was obvious. And he actually came before Jesus when he was called. He brought his broken body before its maker. Jesus had compassion on him. But he didn't grieve him. He didn't need to grieve him because he'd be healed, friends. Jesus wasn't grieving this man who was crippled in front of him because he was going to be healed. He was grieving all of the hearts of all these people who were critics off to the side. He grieved the Pharisees that day because they did not bring their withered hearts before him. They sat in the darkness of their own spiritual superiority, hiding behind their judgmentalism and their pride. He grieved because they would not be healed if they would not give themselves to him. He grieved because somehow, in the midst of all of their focus on the law, they missed the point. They missed how the law, which was given for our healing, could be used to refuse it. They saw the law, but they missed the man for whom it was given. That's a terrible tragedy in this moment. And in that room, which was charged with stunned and angry silence on apparently all sides but that crippled man, who I'm sure was just waiting for something to happen, standing there in front of everybody. But the Pharisees were angry with Jesus. And Jesus had anger and grieved for them. And in the midst of that silent room, giving each man, a, or I should say this, in that, in that room, Jesus, and the text sort of draws this out, it says he looks at everyone, and the connotation there is he actually made eye contact with every person in the room. He asked this question, is this a day for good or for evil? Is this a day for life or death? And they wouldn't answer. And he looked at every single one of them while the silence just hung there. And this man was waiting to see what Jesus would do. Because since Jesus said, come up and stand in front of everybody, he hadn't addressed the man yet. He'd only been addressing everybody else. And he made eye contact with every single one of them, giving each man a moment with his Lord to make his own decision. And when each one had rejected whatever invitation there was in the look of their maker, 
And the silence hung in the air. Jesus said, hold out your hand. And as the man's hand was restored, I imagine Jesus was still looking out at everyone around the room clutching tightly to their withered hearts. It's not in the text. This is me reading into it, but I have in my mind, and I apologize because this might sound really silly, but this is like the only image I could come up with. It sounds to me like a no-look shot or a no-look pass. Like that, that's what you do when you're wanting to um, prove something and make a fool of yourself. Uh, usually, that's what I do, um, is you, you take the shot without even looking, right? And I have this sense, that, like that's, kind of, that's, that's the way the, the story is presented to us. That this man's standing there and Jesus has been looking at everybody else and he just heals this man's hand without even looking at him. As he's looking at everybody else, I don't know, showing off, I don't know what it is. And there's so much in this story, y'all, about... about and I apologize if this is overwhelming just as I read a couple of things that, that are here. This, um, I told Kirsten just before this, I was like, man, I really was like going, man, I want to preach like a 12-week sermon series on this passage. I'm, we're not, but, um, but if you want to meet up, we can do that. Uh, um, there's so much in the story. Listen to the kind of stuff that's in this about the law. And what role does the law, what role does God's law play in our lives? That's in this text. About the wisdom of labor and Sabbath. Friends, we really don't do it well. We, we have this sort of drudgery of work for apparently an extended retirement Sabbath that very few people actually enjoy. Most people just want something productive to do once they get there. And nobody seems to enjoy either of them very well. Is there wisdom in God's command? Is he actually gracious even as he calls us to obey him? Maybe. There's stuff about how life and death, oh man, this is what... I kept fighting this sermon because I wanted to make the whole thing about this here, about how life and death are a better framework than right and wrong and how much better our lives would be if we embodied that. If we'd stop asking, is this the right thing to do? Is this the wrong thing to do? And started asking, what brings life? What brings death? With our roommates and with our money and with our bodies or about how Jesus never loses sight of the one. How is it that in a room charged with a political debate, with a theological debate, where people are trying to trap each other, how is it that Jesus never loses sight of the one? What I can't shake most of all, and what I want to, I guess, draw our attention to most tonight, is that this guy is standing there in front of everyone. And, and how undressed he must have felt waiting for Jesus to act. And how that's probably the invitation for all of us. I imagine he wanted to hide. What person who has something wrong with their body wants to be stared at? You've never met that person. That's not true. I've met one. It was weird. Uh, I wonder if this guy came to the synagogue that day because he heard stories of the last time Jesus taught in the synagogue. That he knew that this was the place and this was the guy that that one guy got healed from last time. And if he heard Jesus was coming, I wonder if he came there that day just for that purpose. I wonder if he wanted to be healed and that's why he came. But, but when Jesus said, come and stand in front of everyone, he actually had a decision to make in that moment. Jesus didn't say, come and be healed. It wasn't like off to the side. While stuff's going on around the side of the room, Jesus says, come and stand in front of everyone. Which has this sort of vibe to it, like everybody is going to look at you. And I, I have to imagine that in that moment, courage and humility are needed to make that decision. But he wasn't the only one who had a decision to make. For when he came up front, Jesus looked at each person in turn, searching them with his eyes and with that question falling off his lips. 
Is this a day to save a life or to destroy life? And I, I know, and, and you, I hope would know if you read the text, that he is calling them out and asking that question. Is this a day to save a life or to destroy a life? To destroy a life or to save a life? He's calling them out a bit, telling them that he knows the motives of their hearts, that they are set about destroying him. And that is the first reading of that text that makes a ton of sense on the surface. But their lives are at stake also. And though their hands might be sure and strong, not withered, Jesus knew what was inside of them, that there they were. There they were standing before a man who could be healed by God and all they cared about is whether they were right or wrong. They were standing before somebody who could be healed and all they cared about is whether they were right or wrong. That's how cold their hearts were. Friends, I, this has been a really hard sermon for me, partly because it's so obvious to me. Like in, in our nation right now, how many conversations are happening where nobody's caring about anything but abstract ideals and misguided ethics? Willing to kill people. And these Pharisees were so concerned about whether they were right in this abstract Jesus would reveal it as misguided notion of right and wrong. They didn't even see the guy that could be healed right in front of them. And so Jesus, with his words and with his look, asks them to come and stand in front of him too. But they remain silent. And I know, because of the Pharisee in me, that every now and again, the truth seeps through a crack in their defenses. That somewhere on their pillow at night, when things get quiet, where they, they recognize the shriveled shape of their heart and they wonder if they shouldn't have spoken up when Jesus called to them. It's a lonely and crushing world to be a Pharisee. I don't know if you're like the man with the withered hand or if you're like the Pharisee. Maybe a little bit of both. But I think that those are the only two options. And either we will remain stubborn with our withered hearts, or we will bring them to the one who can make us new. The one who created a whole day for our refreshment. The one who gives his life for us, the only one in that room that day who actually cared about everybody else. I know it's a week and a half into the school year, and part of what's been so hard for me about this sermon is I've, I, I've been working all day and yesterday in something a little bit lighter than this topic, but the reality is, like, I know what God's going to do this year in your lives. He's going to say to you, come and stand in front of me and let me heal you. That's what he's going to do. Let me have your withered hands and your withered heart and make them new. Just, I don't know, 10 days in or whatever it is, he might even be saying it already. And what's nuts is he's given you the freedom to reject that or to hide from yourself and from him. And my prayer is that you would say yes to him instead. That when you recognize the, the, the withered hand or when you recognize your withered heart or when you see that in others, that you would notice his look and that you would hear him say, come on, why don't you come and stand in front of me? And that you'd say yes. And I pray that God may be so good as to let us do that together. That's what I hope for. I know that that's what he's gonna do in your life and I hope you say yes. We're gonna pray and, get, and, and sing praises to God again, the one who, 
who sees the one and the one who sees everybody in this room. But I want you to know that every night after the sermon and during the last couple of songs, there's people in the back who are willing to pray with you every night. You, you know, if you don't go for 23 weeks and you decide to go one week, there'll be somebody back there that wants to pray for you, all right? And if you ever want to